Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Amen. For those who don't know me, my name is Enis Swart, and um, yeah, welcome. I want, we, we're busy uh, working our way through the book of Colossians, and um, yeah, I've really been enjoying it. It's, it Paul is, is a bit of a, I mean, he, he, he writes like serious theology, and, and what, what he writes in, in, in his letters are quite dense. So, uh, you know, I think as we've been unpacking it, uh, we've been discovering that there's a lot more there than we, than we uh, originally maybe thought. And um, I'm just going to read um, Colossians 1, verse 15 to 20. Uh, Louis preached on that last week, and I'm, I'm just going to sort of focus a bit more on the last part um, of that. Um, but it's, it's a, a powerful... Um, most theologians believe it's a hymn that Paul was using, a, a, a hymn that, that, that they used to sing in the church that Paul actually uses in this letter. So not, a, not a, something that Paul himself sort of creatively invented from scratch, but a hymn that, that was already there that he just incorporated into, um, into this letter. And it... It's all about Christ as the firstborn of creation and Christ as the firstborn of the new creation. Um, that, is, that is first and that is preeminent uh, in both. So let me just read that for us. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, um, He, that is Christ, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And Lord, we just thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you'll come and bring, take this living seed of your word and plant it in our hearts and cause it to bear fruit to the glory of your name. We pray, Holy Spirit, that as we um, study your word together, that you will teach us and illuminate your word to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if this is a, is, is a hymn, a, a sort of a Christ hymn, why does Paul include this Christ hymn as part of his letter? A letter which is all about the gospel, explaining and defending the gospel, and warning the Colossians against counterfeits or alternatives to the gospel. Why, why does he include this hymn here? And, and, and this hymn obviously is, is all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. And, and I think, you know, one of the things it tells us is that it's impossible to understand the gospel without understanding Jesus. It's impossible to understand, to truly understand the gospel without truly understanding Jesus. Um, and another thing that, just by the way, you know, I... I, I you know, when it comes to theology and all that kind of stuff and, and, and the Bible, I geek out a bit. So, so you guys are going to have to bear with me. But, but 
you know, there's so often there are um, people out there, even even theologians, um, many of them who have even turned away, who are still Christian theologians, but they've turned away from the faith. You know, unfortunately, in, in many universities and so on, you get that. People who were Christians, who studied theology, became professors, and then some of them turned away from the faith. Um, and th- there, are, there are some theologians who say, no, this whole thing, uh, Jesus never claimed to be God. The early church never thought Jesus was God. That was something that came on later, you know, a hundred or two hundred or whatever years after Jesus. But think about it. Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, um, you know, somewhere in the early 60s after Christ. So that's about 30 years after the resurrection, okay? And in this letter, he quotes a hymn that they'd probably be singing, been singing for decades, all about how Christ is God, how he is the creator, how the fullness of God was pleased to live in him. I mean, that's a high Christology. That, that makes it clear that this idea that Jesus is God was not something that came later. It was there from the beginning. The early church was singing about it from the beginning. It's not something the church invented sort of against Jesus' will. It, Jesus himself in the Gospels claims to be God, and the early church understood it that way from the very beginning, and they sang about it. Think about that for a moment. It's not, I mean, this is to me quite strong evidence that from the beginning of the church age, um, Jesus was considered God. It wasn't something that was invented. And then the fact that Paul includes this hymn, this song about all about Jesus in this letter about the gospel means that, you see, we, we tend to think Oh, I know who Jesus is. I'm quite comfortable with who Jesus is. Um, you know, you don't have to remind me about who Jesus is. But, but if you put it in, if the early church put this in a song, which they sa- sang repeatedly, then they understood that they needed to be re- constantly and re- repeatedly reminded about who Jesus is. They had to sing the truth about who Jesus is into their hearts over and over again, even though it, would, even though it was truths that they already knew. It bears repeating. So, so I just want to um, encourage you, you know, we're going to talk a lot about Jesus. I'm going to be sharing a lot about Jesus. Don't switch off because you think, oh, I already know everything there is to know about Jesus. <laughs> it's true. We know, if, if you're a Christian, you know Jesus. You don't only know about Jesus, but you know Jesus. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't meditate on who Jesus is and sing about who Jesus is uh, over and over again. So in this, in this hymn, there are sort of three phases. The first one is um, Christ as creator, and that's in uh, um, verse uh, 15 and 16, it's all about Christ as creator. And then the second phase is all about Christ as sustainer, the one who, who upholds and sustains creation. And then the third part is all about Christ as redeemer, the head of the church, and the one who, who redeems and reconciles us um, to God. Um, and, you know, if, if you think about it, it covers, the first two cover creation, and the, sec- the third one covers new creation. The, the first to cover sort of all of creation. He constantly mentions all things. You know, so often the world makes the mistake of making a 
strict and strong separation between the sacred and the secular. And they'll say, no, you know, the church is just about the sacred, and then there are the secu- then there's a secular world. The, you know, um, the church is all about Sunday, the, the sacred, and the secular world Monday to Saturday has nothing to do with that. But if this hymn is true, then it means Christ is Lord of creation, he's Lord of the, of the secular, and he's Lord of new creation, he's the Lord of the sacred. And we as Christians shouldn't fall into the trap of separating the sacred and the secular. Because Christ is Lord of all. He's Lord of the normal creation and of the new creation. And we should separate. And, and don't think that, you know, on Monday, when you go to work, that your Christianity has nothing to do with your work. It has everything to do with it. Don't think that when you're living with your family on a Tuesday that Christianity has nothing to do with it. Christianity and Christ has everything to do with it because Christ is Lord over all. The creation and the new creation. The sacred and the secular. Okay. So let's just um, look at this, this hymn. I just want to show you how this hymn raises certain problems and then presents certain solutions. So what is the problem that this it, it's, it, the problem is a bit more subtle. It's, it's, it's sort of implied. As he implies, it's sort of a twofold problem. Um, alienation from God and, and death. Um, it says the fact that God has to reconcile himself to all things implies that all things are alienated from him. In other words, even though God created creation and it belongs to him, and he created it good the way he wanted it, something went wrong that caused creation to be alienated from God, to be separated from God. The fact that God has has to make peace by the blood of the cross implies, number one, that there is enmity or conflict between the creation and the creator. Something went wrong that caused the relationship to break down and, and caused there to be enmity. There's, there's, no, there's not peace. There's an absence of peace. And, that, and it also implies, um, the, the fact that God had to make peace through the blood of the cross, implies that that separation, that conflict, that enmity is so serious that it took death and blood to atone for it and to reverse it and to make it right. Um, so relational separation or alienation from God inevitably leads to death. Think about, you know, what it is, what it's talking about here is that God is our source. And, 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 and Paul is intentionally alluding back to the beginning chapters of Genesis and what's happening there. You know, Christ is the image of God. God said, let us create man in our image. Um, but, but he's saying that, that we're not only created in the image of God. God is our ultimate source. Now think about this for a moment. When God, how did God create the plants and the vegetation and the trees and stuff? He spoke to the soil and it produced the plants. How did he create the fish? He spoke to the water and the fish were created. How did he create mankind? He spoke to himself and he said, let us create man in our image. What happens when you separate a plant from the soil? It dies. What happens when you separate a fish from the water? It dies. 
What happens when you separate a human from God? He dies. When we get separated, and, that, and that's a law, it's a principle of creation. When something gets separated from its source, it dies. And that's what happened. Because of that relational separation from God, that alienation from God, death came into the world. We died. And, and the reality is all of us, to some extent, feel that alienation and even that death. On many different levels, we, 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 you know, there's, there's death physically and, and our bodies experience it when, when, like me, you're on the wrong side of 40, you start realizing that, that your, your body doesn't recover as quickly as it used to when you were 20, you know, um, and, and your body becomes older and, and there's near skeeter and stuff, you know, more aches and pains and stuff. Your eyes don't, I have to, it's, it's so annoying, you know, I have to start you know, it's, it's not that my eyes are worse. It's just my, my arm has become shorter. So I have to, you know, like, <laughs> so I have to stretch out my arm when I want to read something a bit more. <laughs> no, obviously my eyes are not as good as they were. Now after I started getting myself reading glasses, you know, because I, 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 I can't read as comfortably as I used to. One of these days I'm going to start wearing those reading glasses when I come to preach as well. Uh, I'm going to look all, you know, intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> so the problem is because of, of our, our fallenness and sin, we as humanity, we desired alienation from God, separation from God, to hide from God, but we, we didn't realize that it results in death because God is our source. He sustains us. We cannot live without him. Um, and we suffer death and, and, and fear it, um, and yet so much of humanity refuses to let go of the cause of that death, which is separation from God. So, um, he, he, Paul sketches a picture and he implies that there's reconciliation is needed, which means there's alienation. Um, Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Death has entered crea uh, creation, and, and that's a problem. And, and, and then he also... Um, also sort of shows that even the solutions that we come up with as alternatives of Christ, uh, to Christ and, and the gospel aren't, aren't good solutions. They don't work. I mean, let me just mention three solutions that, that he goes on to mention later in chapter 2 and so on. He talks about empty philosophy, learning. Okay? He talks about um, harsh rules and discipline, you know, harsh treatment of the body. He talks about um, spiritual experience, worship of angels, and all those kinds of stuff. Now, if you think about those things, learning, rules, experience, is there anything wrong with those things? They're not bad per se, but when they are separate from Christ, when they're used as alternatives to Christ and replacements for Christ, then they are a problem. So not only is there a problem, but there's even a problem with our solutions that we tend to come up with. Okay, um, they need to be Christ-centered and gospel-rooted. Then learning is good. Then rules are good even. Then experience is good. So Christ became human to experience two things, and this is very interesting. Um, Christ became human to experience two things that are impossible for God. Okay? 
to experience creation because God is the creator. He's outside of creation. He's not part of creation. And to experience death. God is immortal. He cannot die. You cannot hurt him. He's, he's almighty. And, and, and he became human, not only to become part of creation, but to become mortal and able to die. Um, now, this hymn also then talks about two solutions to the problems of alienation and death. The first one is revelation. God revealing himself to us again. Okay, in order to solve the problem of alienation and death, Christ had to first reveal God, our source, to us. Uh, and as the firstborn of all creation, Christ comes as the visible image of the invisible God to reveal God to us, as, as Louis shared um, last week. Now think about this for a moment, because we can so easily read over that and think, oh, that's a nice idea. That's all cute and so on. But not be struck by the power of this and not be struck by the fact that this is one of the things that makes Christianity fundamentally and totally different from every other religion in the world. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis said it best for me, and I, I just want to read you a portion from an essay of his, one of my favorite essays called um, The Seeing Eye. And, and, and he talks about in this essay how if, if you're not aware of something, it doesn't mean it's not there. It could mean that you just don't have the instruments, the tools to measure it, to notice it. You don't have a seeing eye. So, so listen to what he says here. And, and, and the context here is about the, the, the Russians sending Yuri Gagarin up into space. Okay, And obviously the, 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 the Russian government was atheistic and didn't believe in God. And Yuri Gagarin came back and they had a press conference and said, see, we told you so. We were right all along. We went to space and God's not there. <laughs> that means God doesn't exist. <laughs> and listen to C.S. Lewis's reply to that because it's, it's quite brilliant. He says, the Russians, I'm told, reported that they have not found God in outer space. On the other hand, a good many people in many different times and countries claim to have found God or being found by God here on earth. <clears throat> and <laughs> and then, then he goes on and he says, looking for God or heaven by exploring space is like reading or seeing all of Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's plays in the hope of, that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters or Stratford as one of the places. Shakespeare is one in one sense, present in every moment of every play, but he's never present in the same way that Hamlet or Lady Macbeth are, nor is he diffused through the play like a gas. If there were an idiot who thought plays existed on their own without authors, or uh, not to mention actors, producers, managers, stagehands, or, uh, and not what, our belief in Shakespeare would not be much affected by his saying quite truly that he has studied all the plays and never found Shakespeare in them. The rest of us, in varying degrees, according to our perceptiveness, have found Shakespeare in the plays. But it is a quite different sort of finding from anything our poor friend has in mind. Even he has, in reality, been 
in some way affected by Shakespeare, but without knowing it. He lacks the necessary apparatus for detecting Shakespeare in his plays. You know, it's, it's, it's like, in, in that sense, God as the creator and God as the sustainer of all things is so omnipresent that, and our lives are so dependent on him that we're not even aware of him. It's, it's like, you know, if you, if you say to a fish, you know, have you noticed the water? They're going to say, the fish would say, if they could speak, what water? A fish is so in the water all the time that a fish doesn't notice the water. Okay? And, 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 and in, a, in a very real sense, it's the same with us and God. God is so fundamental to our existence that it's easy, actually, ironically, to miss him <laughs> in that sense. Now, of course, this is only an analogy. Uh, I'm not suggesting at all that the existence of God is easily, as easily established as uh, the existence of Shakespeare. My point is that if God does exist, he is related to the universe more as an author is related to a play than as one object in the universe is related to another. If God created the universe, he created time, space-time, which is, the un- which is to the universe as meter is to a poem or a key is to music. To look for him as one item within the framework which he himself invented and created is nonsensical. Um, let me just read this. The, the avoiding in many times... Sorry, am I at the right... No, let me skip that. About the reaching, I am a far less uh, reliable guide. This is part of his testimony, C.S. Lewis's testimony. Uh, That is because I never had the experience of looking for God. It was the other way around. He was the hunter. I was the prey. He stalked me like a redskin, took unerring aim and fired. And I am very thankful that uh, that is how the first conscious meeting occurred. It forearms one against subsequent fears that the whole thing was only wish fulfillment. Something one didn't wish for can hardly be that. Okay, And then, listen to this. Space travel reveal, uh, really has nothing to do with the matter. To some, God is discoverable everywhere. To others, nowhere. Those who do not find him on earth are unlikely to find him in space. But send a saint into a starship and he'll find God in space as he found him on earth. Much depends on the seeing eye. And then he goes on, listen to this. This is the the main part I want to get to. He says, And this is especially confirmed by my own religion, which is Christianity. When I said a while ago that it is nonsensical to look for God as one item within his own work, the universe, some readers may have wanted to protest. They wanted to say, But surely, according to Christianity, that is just what did once happen. Surely the central doctrine of Christianity is that God became part of his creation, that he became man and walked among uh, other men in Palestine. If that is not um, appearing as an item in his own work, what is it? The objection uh, is much to the point, and I meet it, uh, to meet it, I must readjust my old analogy of the play. 
One might imagine a play in which a dramatist introduces himself as a character into his own play in order to introduce himself to the other characters in the play. And then was pelted off the stage as an impudent imposter by the other characters. And, you know, I, I find it such a beautiful picture. You know, the, the reality is the only way, the only way we could know God is if God reveals himself to us. The only way we could meet God is if he writes himself as a character into his own play and comes and introduces himself to us. And when it says Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, that is what it's talking about. That is what Jesus came to do. We would never have known God unless he had revealed himself to us. Remember in, in the previous, in, in verse 10, uh, Colossians 1 verse 10, it, it, it talks about Paul prays that, that the Colossians would be fully pleasing to God, bearing the fruit of good works and growing in the knowledge of God. It pleases God when we grow in our knowledge of him. God delights to reveal himself to us. Think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. God is pleased to reveal himself to you. God wants to reveal himself to you. God is not trying to hide from you. God went out of his way to reveal himself to you, to introduce himself to you, to make himself known to you. And he delights in it when you grow in the knowledge of God, when you get to know him more. Doesn't that flatter you a bit? That God enjoys not only having a relationship with you, but growing in relationship with you. He really does. That's good news. That's really good news. The only way to know someone is to believe what they reveal about themselves. Not to, I mean, just think about it. You cannot, you cannot get to know someone. I mean, Kurt, who got um, engaged now, if, 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 if he said to his fiancée, you know, um, I like to think of you as, and then proceeds to tell her who he wants her to be, rather than allowing her to tell him who she really is. I mean, is that relationship going to work? If you, <laughs> we're giving you good advice here, Kurt, you must listen, please. <laughs> you, you must allow the other person to tell you and to show you who they are, and then you have to accept them for who they reveal themselves to be. And it's the same with God. We cannot tell God, as so many people in, in their religion do, by saying, the, the, God I, the God I believe in is, and then we try and tell God who we, who we want him to be. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Relationship doesn't work that way, right? You've got to allow God to reveal himself who he is. We, have, we must accept God as he reveals himself uh, and give him his rightful place. Now, interesting, if you, if you just can go on, on the screen to, to verse 17, it says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Some people have interpreted that as God, the fact that Jesus pre-existed creation. But, but notice carefully, it doesn't say he was before all things. Notice it says he is before all things. 
It's not talking about he's first in time. It's talking about the fact that he's first in priority, first in importance. He is, Christ, now, today, is before all things. In other words, if we want to know God, we must put him first. Because he is before all things. The supremacy of Christ in everything. It says that that he might be supreme or preeminent in everything. In other words, if if you want to allow God to be God in your life and in your world, then God must be first in all of life and first in your life. And discipleship is nothing more than learning to put God first in all of life. Discipleship is nothing more than learning to, dis- to submit to Christ in all, of, in all your life. And it's so easy for us, and, and, and why I say that, it's so easy for us to say, Christ, I'll put you first in, ch- in, 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 in church and in small group. And I'll put you first even in my devotional time when I pray and read the Bible but I'm not going to put you first in my work and I'm not going to put you first in my marriage and I'm not going to put you first in my friendships. It's, it's so easy for us to do that, but if we want to truly know God, we must know him for who he is. He's first. And let's be honest, it's not easy to live a Christ-first life in a me-first world. It's not easy. The world is constantly encouraging to us to put ourselves first and to put all kinds of other things first. But the Bible and this hymn, this beautiful, powerful hymn, says to us, if you want to know Christ, he's before all things. Not just he was before all things, he is before all things. He is first, and we must put him first. Okay, so, so the, the, the first thing that Christ does for us in terms of salvation is revealing God to us, revealing himself to us so that we can know him and so that we can overcome this alienation and this relational separation that has, uh, that has happened. But the second thing that he does is he reconciles us, reconciliation. Um, it talks about um, God reconciles, uh, let me just read the, the verse, so that I, the, um, and, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things through Christ to reconcile to himself all things now if you if, you, if we just sort of slow down just to think about what that phrase means that God through Christ reconciles to himself all things I think we'll be surprised at at, at what it says firstly that phrase implies that reconciliation is necessary There has been a break in relationship that makes reconciliation necessary. All of us and all of humanity, all the people that we come into contact every day, at home, at work, all of us, all of humanity start off not being in relationship, not being in right relationship with God. Reconciliation is necessary. The restoring of relationship is necessary. God had to make peace because that peace between him and humanity was absent. Not only that, secondly, it implies that reconciliation is a divine initiative. God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. Reconciliation is not something we do. And this is ironic because isn't God the aggrieved party? Was God the one who broke the relationship? No. 
We as humanity, creation, we broke the relationship. And yet, despite the fact that God is the aggrieved party and that we broke the relationship, God is the one who takes the initiative to restore the relationship. Can you see the kind of God we serve? Can you see how good he is? Can you see how gracious he is? Not only that, but it says that he did this, that he did this reconciliation. This reconciliation is costly. He did it through the blood of the cross. Think about this for a moment. Um, Our reconciliation to God might be free to us. We don't have to purchase it. We don't have to earn it. It's free, but it's not cheap. Jesus paid for it with his blood. And think about the fact that if God was willing to pay that cost to restore relationship with you, think about how important relationship with you is to God. If he's willing to pay that much. If he's willing to make such a costly reconciliation. Think about how important relationship with people out there that don't know God yet is to God. If he's willing to pay such a high cost, the highest cost, to reconcile mankind to himself. So reconciliation is necessary. It's a divine initiative. It's costly. It's also global. It says, reconcile to himself all things, not just all humanity, all things. Because of humanity's fall, all things, in a sense, were alienated from God. And what Christ has done by becoming part of creation is to reconcile all of creation to to himself. So it's, it's, it's sort of a universalism in the best sense of the word. It doesn't mean that everyone will ultimately be saved and go to heaven. But it does mean that through Christ's work on the cross, what he did on the cross will cause all of creation to one day be restored to God and to right relationship with God and um, to what it was supposed to be. But then there's a fifth thing, that reconciliation is necessary, it's a divine initiative, it's costly, it's global, but there's a fifth thing that I learned from a guy called Dick Lucas, that is so, so powerful. Um, And in a sense, the others don't really matter unless you get this one. Let me just read that verse again, verse 20. It says, And through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of the cross. So on the cross, God reconciled to himself all things. That means... That reconciliation is not just necessary, a divine initiative, costly and global, but it's accomplished. It's already accomplished. Dick Lucas says it this way. He says, peace has been made by the death of Christ. Therefore, reconciliation with God waits waits not upon human achievement, but upon human acceptance. God has already done everything necessary for us to be reconciled to him, for all of creation to be reconciled to him. 
We don't have to do anything. We don't have to accomplish anything. We just have to accept what God has already accomplished on the cross. So Christ as the firstborn from the dead implies that more are to follow. Think about that. If Christ is the firstborn from the dead, firstborn implies that there are more to be born. That means what happened to Jesus will happen to us. If Daniel had passed away in that accident, it would not have been the end of Daniel. Because Daniel will be resurrected. One day, uh, I like the way that D.L. Moody, uh, Dwight Moody said it. He said, one day when you read in the newspapers about my death, do not believe it. <laughs> do not believe it. I am more alive than I've ever been. <laughs> because Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He made a way through death for us to follow. Um, think about it. At the resurrection... Christ as the firstborn from the dead means that his resurrection is the first of many resurrections. But at the resurrection, think about it. Just remember the end of the Gospels, you know, and the, the resurrection accounts. Uh, Mary and, and the women get to the tomb. And what do they find there? They find an a angels rolling the stone away and then sitting on the stone and saying to them, what are you looking for? Do they find Jesus in the tomb? So why was the stone rolled away? Was the stone rolled away to let Jesus out? He was already out. The stone was rolled away to let us in. Jesus, through his resurrection, turned the tomb into a door, a passageway into eternity. Here's what this song, and Paul through this song, is appealing to us. He's saying to us, Christians who sing these things about Christ in this powerful hymn, don't live as people who will die. Live as people who will be resurrected. Live your life now as people who will be resurrected. But that is only true of you if you are in Christ who is the firstborn of all creation and who is the firstborn from the dead. And that's why if at the end of your life you don't have Christ, it won't matter what you have. Because everything that is eternal is found only in Him. Only in Him. And that's why we who have Christ should very generously share him with the out world out there who don't know that they need him, but who need him so desperately. And trust that God, as he was pleased to reveal himself to us and to enable us to know him better, God will be pleased to do the same for your colleagues and your neighbors and your friends and your family, the people out there that you have contact with on a daily basis. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. 
May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.